This is Kevin Mullaney, and you are listening to The Improv Nerd. Jimmy, Jimmy Corain, Jimmy Corain's a nerd. Jimmy Corain's an improv nerd. Jimmy Corain's a nerd. Oh, Jimmy. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Gray, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, sponsored by the good people at Hotel Lincoln. The next time you find yourself here in the city of Chicago, and you're looking for something different, a cool boutique hotel that's close to everything. It's right around the corner from uh, Second City. It's across the street from the beautiful Lincoln Park Zoo. It's minutes from Chicago's Loop. It's not only pet-friendly, it's improviser-friendly as well. It's the official hotel of Improv Nerd. We're talking about the Hotel Lincoln. And a quick plug to my award-winning improv classes here in Chicago, The Art of Slow Comedy, where we teach you before you can be funny, you need to be real. I've got an advanced level class starting June 2nd. I limit those classes to 12 people so you get personal stage time and plenty of attention. Uh, It ends with a long-form performance at the cool upstairs gallery here in Chicago. Also, if you're going to be in Chicago in July, we have two artist low comedy intensives, one on July 2nd or 6th and one on July 20th. So go to jimmycarain.com for more information about that. That's the Art of Slow Comedy Intensive and the Art of Slow Comedy Advanced Level Class, jimmycarain.com. You're in for a real treat today. Today's episode, our guest is Kevin Mullaney. Now, if you don't know Kevin, he tours around the country at festivals and goes to different cities, and he teaches improvisation. He also is a wonderful improviser, and I've known him uh, from Chicago. It's got to be 20-so years. He also started the Improv Resource Center, the IRC, the website, and he started, he headed up the training center at the UCB uh, when they first started back in the 90s. Uh, he is just, he explained to us about game of the scene in this interview, and I've never heard anybody explain it this way. We talked a little about his family and how he had to take care of his mom uh, when she was sick and, and how he dealt with that. We also talked a little about Meisner, and we did uh, in this episode a Meisner exercise, which I don't know if you're going to get or not, but I had a good time doing it. Uh, and we also asked him why he thought that people that came out of the UCB are so successful. I think you're really going to love this interview. Before we get to the wonderful interview with Kevin, I just want to thank everybody for reaching out on Facebook and and wishing me a happy birthday. Uh, it meant a lot to me. And uh, I turned 50, and I'm over the, if you're listening to this website, I'm probably half your age. I'm not relevant anymore. I can just tell you right now, uh, I'm an old man. And uh, so, uh, and I feel depressed about that. And I I feel sad. It's been one of those weeks where uh, I had a birthday party and for celebrating it, and uh, we ordered way too much food, which is my uh, – I, I just – I or, always order way too much food because I'm afraid – because when I grew up, we always had tons and tons of food, and the, the motto that we lived, was, it was better to have too much than too little, and uh, – I got up the next morning after the party, and I was so mad at myself because we got it catered. We went to uh, uh, Portillo's, and we got, like, Italian sausage and masticcioli. And I was like, uh, we, and we sent so much home with people, and I was just like, why do I order so much food? But that's my way of killing joy. I focus on the negative. Uh, so, uh, well, I mean, you've been listening to this podcast. You know that's what I do. Enough about me. Again, I want to thank everybody for reaching out. I really appreciate it. And I know you're going to love this episode. 
He's a wonderful teacher, and he's a wonderful improviser, and a wonderful guy, Kevin Mullaney. Great. We're all recorded. We're Justin. We're it's working. Great. Uh, I'm very paranoid. Very paranoid. <laughs> we're talking backstage about Facebook. Right. Right. And in uh, what is your relationship with Facebook? You know what mine is. You know, I, I, I very I, open on very Facebook. open. Too open, you think? Well, yes. Okay. <laughs> in, in what way? Well, I see. I guess I, I don't. Uh, I don't feel Facebook is such a strange platform because you are. Uh, for me, I'm. I'm uh, it's more of a public persona. Do uh-huh. you know what I mean? It's not. It's. It's. Uh, and I know that I'm somebody who overshares in personal in my personal life. I hope it's true today. Uh, we'll try. Okay. Um, but it's. It's hard to. It's hard to justify like putting out some of your thoughts to everybody. I mean, part of it's an image thing, which as a comedian, you kind of have to be aware of a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like there are various people who their their persona on Twitter or Facebook or Tumblr or wherever is, is a, it's not exactly curated, but they're they're very aware that what they're pushing is themselves, and it's not about. It's not about sharing the details of their life. I feel like there's other avenues that are. What are they? Because I need them. <laughs> well, you know, your significant other, your 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 therapist, your friends. Uh, um, that's the thing. Like, uh, just the the internet in general has changed so much in the last fifteen years, last five years, um, and I really don't like most of the changes. Like the the Facebook part of it, I hate. I hate that uh, the internet wants you to. Like wherever you go to be identified as that that one person, does that make any sense? No. But back in the day, like you know, when I because I ran, run have uh, run this website for years, the Improv Resource Center. So it's a message board, and people when they joined that message board, they could sort of pick their identity. They didn't they didn't have to choose to say, you know, this is Kevin Mullaney who is is posting these posts. Mm-hmm. Um, which, they could come up with a, a character name or something. Well, if they since want. it's a character, so it's 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 a way to kind of hide you from you know, like if if you were some kid that was uh, picked on in school, and uh, later on you you want to join some com- some community on the internet, then you could sort of just join it and come up with a pseudonym, and no one would find you except for the people you want to find you. Now we're in this world with Facebook, and everybody who wants to find you can find now, you. Now you say like you overshare, like yeah. in life. Give me an example of you oversharing, because I've known you for a while. I I I experience you more close to the vest kind of guy. Is that just I around? I think I am me? now. Okay, I, think I am now. Uh, I think yeah, I was the kind of person where if you if we went to lunch or or something, I would just tell you everything you know everything of my all my thoughts about relationships and other things and I guess there's more of I guess there's more of me that I feel is kind of private now or something it's sort of like how has that evolved uh, <laughs> some of it is some of us having a long-term girlfriend right which as an improviser for 20 years I didn't have a right. long-term, I right. had one long-term girlfriend I can relate this. and then wait till you get married uh, well, sure. That, right. that, and then Does that this, scare this you? This kind of like a perimeter of like this is nobody else's business, um, where where you, I don't know because it affects somebody else. You don't want to just tell talk mm-hmm. to anyone about what's going on. You know. Are you scared of the marriage thing? 
I don't know if I'm scared of it. Um, <laughs> she's probably going to listen to this. Um, I don't know if I'm scared. Of it. I just it was never uh, it was never something I I sought. Mm-hmm. You know, I just never never. I was so interested in the theater and pursuing various goals um, that it just wasn't a high priority. For there was also long periods of my life where I felt uh, very unconfident about women you know mm-hmm. my, my life I can is totally these. relate and a lot of people don't know you were heavier like I was sure you know which does not help at all do no. you think and I'm kind of heavy now uh-huh. uh, I was much heavier when I was in New York uh, for a while at least I was I may have been heavier for a while in in Chicago yeah that didn't help like the first period of being confident with women in my 20s was after losing you know 30 40 pounds and mm-hmm getting into shape and you know that just has a boost in your confidence so um so are we going to talk about improv we're going to talk about improv uh, <laughs> y- does this make you uncomfortable talking about yourself uh i, I don't know okay no would you rather because we're going no, right we'll, into improv we'll, we'll go we'll, okay go wherever you want to go um so you came to chicago yeah to be an actor yes what was it that appealed to you to, to become an actor well um in college, I spent a year abroad in London, at uh, University College London, and they did not have a drama program there, but they had a what they call a drama society. It's basically a club run by the student union, and they ran a different show every week of the year. They had a small black box theater, and they ran a different show in there every week of the year, and then they had access to a bigger theater that they did two or three productions in as well. Um, and that year abroad, even though I was an English major, I wasn't studying theater, I acted, I directed, I produced shows, I did lighting design, I um, did like all the different pieces of it, um, and uh, produced a show that went to Edinburgh, and I just loved it. It was, I, I think a lot of my life is trying to recreate that, because I love that experience so much. I love like, oh wow, having a having a small theater where you can do anything you want. You can do plays, you can do improv, you can do uh, storytelling shows, whatever. Just having a place where you can sort of experiment and create art. And, and then you end up here in Chicago. Yeah. You, you take the Players Workshop and you end up mm-hmm. at the I.O. Yeah. And one of your first teachers is Matt Besser. <laughs> yeah. And what was he like back then? Well, it was interesting. I believe it was the very first class he taught. Okay. Because when I got to I.O., it was, it was like... It, it, it sounds like his, her, her curriculum was constantly sort of expanding, right, collapsing was, a little it was bit. Like it was like Sharna, then Miles slash Adam. Okay, Adam McKay. Adam McKay and Miles Stroth were teaching level two. Uh, and then you would go right to Dell. Um, and then after, when I, after I started, they, uh, they created a, a third level for Besser for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't remember what his focus was. Uh, but... I feel like I've talked about him before as as a teacher. He was a really interesting teacher. He was very, um, very experimental in that class. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it was because it was first class or something, but he was very experimental, very kind of, kind of avant-garde in his approach. Maybe he was trying, you know, it was he was very uh, influenced by Dell at that point, probably. So he was trying to sort of try different things with us. And what was Adam McKay like as a teacher? I don't remember very well because uh-huh. I took when I took level two it was. The two of them shared. It was Miles and Adam. So they did like Miles every, Stroth, every yeah. other week. And I remember 
I think I remember Miles more as a teacher, but that's because when I got hired as a teacher, Sharna said, go watch Miles. You know, there wasn't a written curriculum. It was like, go watch Miles teach, teach what he teaches. So that's what I did. And what was that like? It was really interesting. I mean, Miles had what Miles, I, I did that also with Susan. So it was a few years later, Susan Messing. started a level there. But Miles is like math. I mean, how yeah. he approaches it is like almost formulaic. Yeah, well, that's the thing of, of like, I was told to do that twice, once with Miles, once with Susan, and they're such incredibly different teachers that I learned a lot from both. It was like Miles would create exercises that were too difficult for anyone to do, and Susan would create exercises which were almost impossible to screw up if you just got on stage and tried. You know, if you really tried, you, you would always succeed in Susan's class. If you, no matter how hard you tried, it just wouldn't work. And here, were, here was this guy, you, who had studied Meisner and was mm -hmm. trying to apply Meisner to improvisation. So how did you find that balance? Well, I think that just happened, you mm -hmm. know. I took, when I started Players Workshop, at the same time I started at Center Theater, which was up on Devon, here in Chicago, yeah. which is no longer, but it's it was no a Meisner. It was a Meisner-based place, and it was it was one of the more popular. Yeah, you know, it was, it was a pretty well-respected theater uh, program, uh, much like I don't know Green Shirt or Black Box or Artistic Home. Now, some of the people from there went to Artistic Home, and it was very Meisner-based. It was uh, this uh, technique classes. You did a lot of repetition. I did repetition for sixteen weeks there. Right. Um, and then we did other... And for people that don't know repetition, it would be like, I'm looking at you and you're, and, and you're just calling people's behavior. Right. So it would be like, you look in inquisitive. I look inquisitive. You look inquisitive. I look inquisitive. You look inquisitive. You're smiling. I'm smiling. You're, you're amused. I'm amused. You're amused. I'm amused. You're amused. I'm amused. You're amused. And so that would be the whole class. <laughs> right. And so yeah. we started making out or someone punched Right. Them. Right. It would be like it was either fucking or fighting. Yeah, that's actually that's what I remember. Somebody's people saying that, and I and I got really irritated actually back in the day when I studied because I thought there was so many incredible things that happened uh, in those classes. Like the the most raw, most interesting things I've ever done on stage were probably in those classes twenty five years ago, twenty years ago, um, and they were just so visceral and exciting. And it was so hard to sort of draw the line: is this is this real or is this something that's happening only on stage? Does that make any sense? Like, Total sense. You, you, you know, you can get to a certain level of reality and improv, but it, it was so much more gut-wrenching and visceral. Well, to me it was, because I took it too, there, there was some, a personal element to it. Mm -hmm. You know, like it was hard to like, when you, went, when you left class, if you had a scene where you were fighting with some guy or you made out with some chick, you'd be, it was hard not to, to, to bring that, to, to leave sure. that there, you know? Well, we had, my, my, we had one sequence. There was, because there was an awful lot of making out in this class. And you would, like, why would that be happening with, with, with repetition? But you would, re you would repeat with somebody. You were encouraged to act on your impulses. Uh, you might tell someone you find them attractive, and you would end up kissing. And you could also tag people out. So there was this one night that I remember where I don't think I was involved. I feel maybe I was, but I, I definitely watched it, where, where one guy started making out with this girl. Um, somebody tagged in and without doing any repetition just immediately started making out with her. Um, another guy tagged in, they started making out. And then one more, another guy tag, tagged in, stepped away from her and said, slut, as the, like that was his repetition. Right. So it was really like, Holy, what is going on? Uh -huh. What is going on in this class? This is crazy. Uh, so uh, we flash forward to a few weeks later and we go out 
drinking after the last class because it was such a, you didn't want to talk to anybody after this class. You wanted to leave and not, and deal with it on your own. Um, but we went out drinking on the last night, most of the people in the class, and her husband uh, showed up <laughs> um, who, uh, who had also gone through the class. So he, he both knew what the class was about and she had told him everything that had happened. You know, and he just sort of had this look on his face. He wasn't mad or anything, but it was, it was, it was sort of like, oh yeah, okay. So, I don't know. I think people, anyone who had some sense of like there was something there uh, realized there wasn't. Um, so you're doing Meisner, then yeah. you do Frank Booth, which is mm -hmm. a great legendary team at, at the Improv Olympic. And then uh, Amy Poehler calls you. Mm -hmm. Around 1996, 95, somewhere in there? No, uh, it was 99, actually. Okay. Um, it depends. The, she she uh, sent me a message in 98, and I went out to UCB and taught a workshop. Now, how did you know Amy here? Amy was in classes around the same time I was. So uh, I think she's her and Tina started maybe a couple... Tina Fey? Tina Fey started mm -hmm. a couple classes after I did. They were on a, a team inside Vladimir when, during that whole period I was on Frank Booth. And also Tina was on... Mr. Blonde. Um, but anyway, so so Amy invited me to come out to teach a workshop, where they all really did. It was usually Amy who I heard from. Uh, I taught a workshop in 98, and then in ni spring of 99, after Dell died, they sent me another email and said, come on out to uh, teach for us. And how did you decide to make that decision? Because weren't oh, you I, running the like training center? Immediately. You were running the training center at I.O. at that time. <laughs> um, no, I wasn't actually running what, the training center. Why do you center. laugh? No, it was, there was no thinking about it. It was okay. instantaneous. Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, I'm, okay. I'm going. And so tell me, you go there, and it's like the beginning of long form, right? Well, in New of, York. Yeah. In New York. Kind of, yeah. There's 50, 100 students. It's you, Armando, and then the UCB4 who are teaching out there. Yes. Yeah, so the UCB went out there. I think they first went out there in 95, and they, they had been doing uh, lots of sketch shows. They were trying to get a sketch show on Comedy Central. They weren't trying to start a theater. Um, but it just sort of happened. They would do improv and people would ask them to coach and teach. So they sort of built up this following and they realized after a while they were producing all these shows um, that it was cheaper for them to have a theater than to produce all these shows at other places. So they opened a theater and invited me to come teach about a month or two after their first theater opened. And uh, they, were, they were just exploding with students. Uh, you know, it took us years to, to sort of go through the waiting list for students there. Um, and it's still like that. You, they put up new classes and they sell out in 10 minutes. It's so crazy. what was that like? You know, now you're, you, you know, you're, 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 you're teaching there. You're hugely respected. You know, it's at the beginning of this, this movement. I mean, Magnet's not around. Pitt's not around. It's just the UCB. They're bringing Chicago-style improv to New York. How exciting was that? It was really fun. I mean, it was it was really interesting. I think that the the talent level of the people at UCB, on average, was was way higher than what I saw in Chicago. Now, why is that? Do you think? Because I don't think New York is is always the place you go to first. Mm -hmm. You know, people get good and then they go to New York. So people had a bigger background as performers. Some of the people I was working with. Um, I don't know if you've ever met Michael Delaney. So there was Michael Delaney and, and uh, Billy Merritt and uh, Andy Secunda and uh, Andy Daly the, and Sean Conroy. These are guys who were on this team called The Swarm. And um, they had been doing improv for a very long time by the time I met up with them. But it was just 
this style of long form was new to them. So it was very, it was exciting because there were the, a lot of people who were just ready for something like this to happen. But it was also exciting because people were working. You know, I didn't know any working actors besides like the six people on main stage uh, when I lived at in Second City. At Second City when I lived in Chicago. And I remember there was one woman at IO who made a living doing voiceover. I go to New York and I'm on a team, a Herald team there at UCB, and half the team are people who are working writers or producers or they're, they're people already working in the industry. And people every day were pitching shows and it just was like a level of, of uh, I don't know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ambition or uh, focus that wasn't, I didn't see in Chicago. It's much easier in Chicago to kind of have your improv gigs, do your temp job, and have a fairly comfortable life, relatively so, and just well, have fun. Is it fair to say that in, when we were around, and we were around a similar time, that there was, it was almost kind of an artist colony mentality, that we didn't think beyond improv? Well, I didn't, no. I mean, the pinnacle for me was doing Harold on, on uh, Saturday night at I.O. And that was it? I didn't, I, uh, it wasn't until very late that I wanted to work for Second City. Like most people who do improv, I think, uh, you know, they, they're drawn to Chicago to do improv because of Second City. And I just wasn't interested. When I first moved here, I didn't, I saw a couple shows there. I, did, I wasn't impressed. Um, you know, it's, it was funny, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, there wasn't, it wasn't artful in the way that I wanted theater to be good. Um, and then a few years later, Pinata Full of Bees came along, and then those string of shows that Mick Napier directed, and I went to see those shows and went, oh my god, I'd love to do these shows. But I was already four or five years in, I was too busy to go do the conservatory, you know, I auditioned a couple times for tour code, didn't get called back. Um, so it wasn't, uh, it just wasn't in the cards. I think you, if you want to work at Second City, you kind of have to know that. It really helps to know that when you're like 17, you know. It, it's kind of a hard thing to like at 25 to go, I want to work at Second City. It can happen. People get hired at age 30 or whatever. But it's the same thing with SNL. Like if you don't know you want to work for SNL when you're 13, you're probably not going to ever work for SNL. That's hopeful. That's, that's a hopeful. I'm, I'm breaking that to you, Jim. Yeah, but. thank you. Um, <laughs> and then when I would seen you in New York uh, uh, with UCB, there was this, there was, there, it was almost a period where you were transitioning. There was, I think there was like, oh, I, I'm teaching too much. I, um, I, I want to cut back. Do you remember this period in your life? I, I go back and forth on that all the time where I, I feel like I get drained. I teach too much. I coach too much. I mean, there were definitely periods in New York where I was teaching four classes a week and coaching two teams a week and didn't have any time to perform or do other things. And why is that important? Well, most of, well, it's certainly good, I think, to have a combination of, of teaching, directing, and coaching, and not to be just teaching. I think if people just teach, and of course performing as well, um, that they don't get it, uh, how do I say this? When I walk into a class, I want to use exercises that I know work. I don't want to experiment too much in class. Uh, I want to be doing things where I know what I'm looking for. When I'm coaching, I can sort of get a crazy idea in my head. Like I was coaching a group the other day and I said, 
we were, I don't remember why, uh, why this came up, but I, uh, I told them, I think it was, they were, they were told to slow down by Ian Roberts. I took a workshop with Ian. You know, slow down, and it was okay to take a few, some silence between lines. And so I said, well, just count. I want you to count 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000 before you respond, and then immediately respond. Because there's something about, like, if, you, if you're too silent for too long, you get in your head, and so I had this hunch that if I force them to count, then they're not going to have time to, to think too much in that long silence. And, and the, their subconscious will give them the answer to what to say next. And it was the kind of thing that it was fun and it found out some interesting things. And I think they liked it, but I wouldn't do that in a class because it's just too... I would do that several times coaching before I do a class. But the other thing I think that's really important, which I think I'm missing now um, to a certain extent, is getting coached by other people or, or taking classes or things like that. When I moved back to Chicago, I finally took classes at The Annoyance. I took writing classes at Second City. I went through the black box uh, acting program, um, all because I had been away from it for four years. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to feel at the top of my game again. And I learned so much from being in a student, being a student. What did you, what did you learn? I learned how awful it is to sit in class and wait to do improv. Why the teacher is talking? If the teacher is talking too much, if the scenes are going on too long, if mainly it's, I mean, the thing was like I was going through the classes at the annoyance and actually they were doing a great job. I, I think they were doing a really great job sort of moving things along and, and there wasn't a lot of sitting in your seat. But even when they were doing a good job, I still was sitting in my seat going, I want to do this exercise two times, three times. Why can't I do it more than one time? How do you do this? How do you put your ego at the door and, and say, look, I'm Kevin Mullaney. I've been teaching for a long time. And it's got to come up. Well, it's got to come up. Or in your head you're going, this isn't a very good teacher. I could uh, do this better. Well, that didn't come up with the annoyance. But um, I was, uh, you know, I was a little weird. weird. That didn't come out when I was uh, in acting classes or writing classes, really. But yeah, the first day at the annoyance, I just kind of wanted to disappear. I didn't want. I just was like, I'm just just going to be Kevin in this mm -hmm. class. I'm not going to be because I don't. But like, as if Kevin people would know me, right, right. Um, and we went around, and everybody said what they had done. And the thing was, half the people it was their second ever improv class, and half the people their story sounded just like mine. They were people who had done improv at I.O., had been taken away from it from, for whatever reason, kids, school, career, whatever, and they wanted to get back into it. So I suddenly realized, like, oh, okay, I'm not really that special. <laughs> and it was a good thing. It was a good thing to know, like, oh, this is, this is what people do. They go away from it for a while and they come back. And you, you did go away for it for a while because your mom got sick, right? That's right. And you went to Peoria and you, you had to take care of her. That's right. My, my sisters and I took, took care of my mom for about three, four years. Now, what did she have? She had dementia. And what was, what, what was that like? It was, uh, I mean, it was the worst uh, experience of my life, you know? Um, it was tough. It, it, is it, what's the hard about it? Seeing somebody... Like not really being who they were when you were growing up. Yeah. So she um, she was a very uh, 
she was a very kind person, very smart person. She was a teacher. She taught nursing. She was a pilot. She taught people how to fly. Um, she uh, had a PhD. Um, so to see her kind of ground down by this was was really tough. Um, the first thing in the type of dementia that she had, the first thing that you tend to lose is is your speech and your impulse control. Um, so it you know it was it was over time it was it, it was like watching a person not exactly regressing, but it, you know, somewhat becoming childlike, you know, in, in, in the way that she interacted with the world. But she was an incredibly sweet uh, person all through it. So, you know, sometimes people go through dementia and they become total assholes, um, and because their their impulse control goes away, and so they their outer their inner jerk comes out. But my mom was such a, a, a kind person that. Um, that she just remained kind even even long into the so did, you had to leave New York to go to Peoria, right? Well, I spent a year in Phoenix in between. Okay, so Phoenix I, to take care of your dad, right? Right. Well, that was yeah. It sounds like I'm taking care of my dad, but really, what it was was I left. He was sick, and he wanted to go to Phoenix. Okay. Uh, and so my sister said, "Will you please drive him to Phoenix? We're worried about him." And it took you a year. To get to <laughs> well, I decided I would drive him to Phoenix, and then I'd stick around for a few weeks. And then I thought I'll just stay for the winter with him because I was a poker player. He was a poker player. His intention was to go to the casino every day and play poker. Do and you think he had a gambling problem? Uh, no. Okay. No. Okay. Not when it came to poker. Okay. All right. <laughs> What do you no, mean by that? What do you mean by that? No, I mean he he didn't lose all his money playing gambling. He was he was he was very obsessed with poker as I was, um, and I was trying to be a professional poker player, and so was he. Although he was kind of beyond, he was too probably a little too old, not mm -hmm. quite as sharp as he needed to be to be a pro. But he had been doing playing poker for ten fifteen years, very seriously. So it was a it was a weird but really wonderful experience of spending six every single day almost 24 hours a day with my dad for five months what was so wonderful about it did you resolve some things that you had as a kid oh I mean I didn't have any like lingering issues with him it just was uh, my dad uh, and my mom got divorced when I was in middle school and uh, he worked very very hard when I was a kid so he was I didn't a pathologist right? he was a pathologist uh -huh. and I didn't spend much time with him as a kid either before or after the divorce um, so, yeah, there was never a period that I spent that much time with him. So it was just nice to, I don't know, to share this thing in common, this poker thing in common, and, and uh, uh, you know, just be with each other every day. And then, so you don't perform, you don't teach for three, four years when you're in Peoria? Right, right. And what was that like? I mean... Th that part of your life um, is it? Do you just accept it? I have to take care of my mom, or I didn't fight it too hard. I did try to come up here every once in a while, and I did Armando a few times. Mm -hmm. How'd that go? Uh, it was hard. It was hard doing it without. You know, there were periods in my life where I performed two, three times a week for years, and to go from that to doing nothing, you get rusty, you know, mm -hmm. and you get scared. You get you don't trust your impulses. You think way too much about what do all these people right. think of me, you know, rather than 
you know, the kind of ensemble experiences where you just know everybody trusts each other and let's just go out and have a good time. I'm always afraid to go back to do it because it's like they're going to say something like, uh, don't come back or, uh, you're, you know, you've, you've lost it. <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny? Oh, I just, I, I just, yeah. <laughs> it happens. It does? Yeah. Has it happened to you? Yeah, sure. She Can told, you? Sharda told me not to come back. Really? <laughs> yeah. What was that like? Um, you had well, done a show. I done. I I moved back to Chicago. Okay. Um, I stayed away from the show for a while because I knew that I wanted to get better. I went through the classes. I went through all these right. classes. I started performing in other groups, and then I thought, you know, I'm I'm ready for this. I came went back. Uh, went back a few times, and and then she sent me an email saying, oh, you know how you? I said you could come back anytime. Well. How did you take that? Because my relationship, I was, yeah, <laughs> I was uh, I was pretty upset with her. Did you write to her and say nope. anything? <laughs> no, no, I Have didn't write back. Have you seen her since? A little bit. It's ever come up? Nope. You would never bring it up, or I don't know. I might eventually, but but the thing was at the at the moment when she sent me the email, I, I've learned not to respond to emails when I'm angry mm -hmm. because because it's. Um, I could well be misinterpreting what they're saying, right? Because I've done that, where I've read an email, gotten angry, responded, and then go back and reread the email and realize, oh, they didn't say what I think they said. I totally relate to that. So I let it. I just let it. I just like, okay, I'm just not gonna. I'm not gonna think about it, and um, uh, and then yeah, well, that's all I want to talk about with that. Right. But it was yeah, it was it was a little. Okay. I would have felt hurt. I was hurt. You so, know? But that happened. The thing is that happens. It was probably a good experience to have because for years and years, there, you know, I've experienced that vicariously with other people, you know, other people being hurt uh, by the process of being cut and all that, all that, that insecurity and, and stuff that that engenders. Um, but I had never experienced it from her. So it was kind of probably a good thing. How do you think that, that that experience has made you a better teacher? Well, I don't know how much it affects me as a teacher. I know that it affected, boy, boy, this is weird to talk about this so publicly. Um, so I know it affected a lot of what we did in New York. Not, no, nobody else knew Sharna, it, the, the people I was, run, helped, like for a while I helped run the Herald teams mm -hmm. in New York. Um, but there were a lot of uh, decisions that we made that were very much like, this is how we're going to do it, in part because I knew that we need to do better than how my experience at I.O., mm -hmm. for instance. Mm -hmm. um, we called, if someone got cut from a team, we called them. We always had uh, as long a conversation as they wanted to have about this, about, about getting cut. Uh, and we would try to give them reasons. Uh, we would have open auditions, you know, for anybody who was at a minimum sort of level of qualification, so that so that it wasn't just us sort of picking our favorites from class. It was there was some moment when you could say, "I'm ready to be on a Herald team," um, and if you could, if you didn't want to go through the audition, well, you probably weren't going to get on a team. Um, so there were a lot of changes, little little changes like that. I'm still not sure that it's the right way to go. I don't like, um, you know, 
casting teams like that seems very weird to me in what, retrospect. How would you cast them? What, what in you, the ideal? Well, I mean, world? imagine the same process for rock bands. Mm -hmm. uh, you go through a rock band school. And um, somebody decides who your best friends are going to be for the next four years and, and says, you guys go be a rock band together. Uh, oh, and you have to you know, pay somebody to coach you and you're never going to get paid on the stage and, and all, all the other things that go along with it. And it's just like, this is crazy, the, the way it's set up. Um, the, but the biggest thing is, is, is that the best team, almost without a without exception, with very few exceptions. The best teams are almost always teams that put it themselves together. They're not put together by like a random assortment of, of people who just finished classes. Um, they can sort of start out that way, but you know, it, it's so rare to me. It, it, as, as opposed to all these teams I know of where that put themselves together. I mean. We, you, uh, you talked, I just listened to the Craig Kukowski uh, improv nerd, and you talked about the family, and that's, they've probably come up a lot mm -hmm. in different talks. Um, and they were an IO team, but they kind of put themselves together. They were, they were sort of remnants from a couple other teams, and they decided, we're going we're gonna to play together. Um, there was, uh, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the teams in New York were, there, there were some very good Herald teams, but the really the best teams were just, you know, teams that put themselves together. Why do you think that there's so many people who come out of UCB that are so successful? What is it about that place, the culture and the training? Um, it's several things. I mean, part of it is sort of just the selection process of going through UCB, um, that uh, the self-selecting process. In other words, people who they're generally people move to New York when they're a little bit more ready to succeed, if that makes any sense. Okay. Um, they usually have a little bit more experience than if, if they move when they move to Chicago. Like Chicago is a place you move to right out of college. Uh, New York is a place you move to after after a couple more years. Um, that's a gross generalization, but it's kind of true. Um, part of it was. They were the only game in town for like two or three years during this really critical period. So everybody who was talented and funny in New York glommed onto this. Not everyone, but in a, a huge number of people just sort of showed up. Now, would you know? Would they have succeeded uh, otherwise? You know, would Rob Corddry or Brian Husky or you know Rob Riegel or, or all these other people that went through there uh, would they have succeeded uh, on their own? Maybe they were all very talented. But it was more like it was a magnet for really talented people to, to get together. But, it, but it's still continuing to be successful. And, and part of it, I think, is their, is their uh, philosophy. When you, get, when you get, go through the, the classes at UCB, you, you are usually pretty able to, to describe very tangibly what they've taught you. And I don't think that's true of a lot of places. You go through uh, improv programs and you you might get a you might have like a, a an assembly of, of rules that you're you're trying to follow, uh, a bunch of different ideas, and it's sort of up to you to sort of put it together and synthesize. Which I guess that's always true in life. But when you go through the UCB, it's very much this thing of like we're going to teach you these this this principle, this idea of how to approach scene work, and uh, we're going to 
set you up to learn it in level one, we're going to teach it to you in level two, and we're going to reinforce it in every class you take after that. Did you have a hand in that? I, I'd always sure. heard that, that uh, Ian Roberts was the one who wrote the stuff down, you know, the, uh, the almost like the manifesto before they made it into a book. Well, he had a sheet that he gave out, a very clear, concise little two-page sheet that he gave out to his students and mm -hmm. that everybody in New York had a copy of, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and a lot of it was based on that. I don't really, you know, as far as, because I was already on board with their idea of game of the scene before I moved out there. I mean, it was part of the reason they hired me. Um, was because I was writing about game of the scene already on my website. And I'd studied with Besser, I knew Ian. So they, they knew my ideas, I think. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't remember long curriculum conversations with them at first. Uh, you know, I helped write a, an early version of their curriculum, um, but a lot of that was also just kind of talking with the people who were teaching for them at the time and trying to, the, we were all trying to synthesize what the UCB had taught them. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're going to improvise now, and we're going to okay. improvise the game kind of <laughs> style. <laughs> give, me, give me an example of... of well, are we going to do organic scenes or premise scenes? There, you can, you can, you can. <laughs> have, you, have you read the book yet? Jim? I have not read the book. I have not read the okay. book. So, so the, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think you, it's obvious, and I, I'm That I'm scared? Yeah. No, no. Yeah. It's obvious that there's two ways to approach a scene that they, they sort of talk about. One is uh, organic scenes, and all they mean by that is you don't know what the game is before you start the scene. Okay. You don't have a premise. You okay. just, you have a location, you have a character, you okay. have something. You know, this is. Most improv in Chicago, I think, starts this way. Yeah. And then the other one is a premise where you are starting the scene with a specific idea that you want to execute. So if Ascat is premise-driven. Mm -hmm. um, Armando is kind of half and half. Okay. Uh, World News Tonight is very premise-driven. Mm -hmm. They have very clear ideas when they initiate. Um, so that's how they break it down. So I imagine, now I'm, I haven't listened to a ton of improv nerds, but I imagine you usually start from an organic place, just knowing you. Yes, but I also like to scare and challenge myself. Okay. Um, what would you like to do? I mean, I, I, always, I was always big, more of a fan of starting organically. Okay. But, um, uh, but So through this, we're going to find a game, right? I hope so. And I remember you saying something, too. You said the one, the, the, of course, I'm paraphrasing, remember, the one thing you, you were very clear on, you might not have been the funniest guy, but you always understood game. Would you say that was true? I think so, yeah. I recognized what, when something was funny. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was like, the, I was the version of the class clown where I didn't come up with the funny things, but somebody else would, and then I would repeat it louder. Um, and that's kind of what it is. It's like I'm paying attention to what's going on, and when I see something that I think is interesting or fun, uh, it's my job to amplify that, mm -hmm. whether it's something I did or it was something my scene partner did. Okay. Um, John? John, are you up there in the lights? You're, you're up there? I, I can't hear you. Yes. Okay. So we're going to we'll go, because we're running a little late. Let's do about around eight minutes. Okay, great. So um, we're going to do an organic scene. Okay. What are we going to take? What would you like as a suggestion? Well, you know what? Actually, I I love doing. What uh, is more starting? What Kevin? Starting with absolutely nothing. 
Okay. Which is kind of like how, like how you start, like it seems like I saw your show at CIF. Uh-huh. So after the first scene, you know, certainly, where it's just like you just go on stage and you're just, you're using the, how the scene feels. Okay, so we're not going to come, we don't have, we're not planning anything. No. And when I mean not planning anything, I'm not going to come in with an emotion or an attitude. No, I like to start neutral and see what is already, what it feels like. Okay, great. Let's do it. Mm. Big guy, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I am. But well, I belong. I belong here, just like you do. I, I understand. I, under, I understand that. Okay. Um, um, Why you get so close to me? I'm. I'm just coming out here. Okay. Because you're not. You're not welcome in the house. You're just my stepdad. All right. You, 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 you don't get to decide whether Bill, that's a house I grew up in. Bill, I understand, but your mother, she's going through a very hard time right now, all right? And you came here unannounced. <laughs> it's Thanksgiving! <laughs> <laughs> I've been in this house every Thanksgiving Bill, since I was Bill, four! The rules have changed since I married your mom, okay? Okay. All right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So why don't you just get back in your Honda and go back to Seattle or wherever you're doing your, your music stuff. Well, what are the rules for me to come to Thanksgiving? <laughs> the rules are we need to call you and invite you. I can't make that happen though. Isn't there some way, something I can do? You can go home and listen for the I'm phone sorry, ring. okay, I am sorry. Okay? I am sorry for what I did last time. <laughs> I love your mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay? And what you did at our wedding, I will not forget. It was honest. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's the song you that I... were drunk. Yeah. Yeah. But I did... That was an honest song that I sang. I'm sorry it was inappropriate for your, I should have just been a part of, you know, I wrote it for my last album, and Your I mother never had... touched you inappropriately. It's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> of course she didn't. Well, she thinks she did. And everyone at the wedding thinks she did. Wait, what? <laughs> that I, she, if she thinks that I You, think... in your song, Yeah. you said that Phyllis, yeah. Touched you inappropriate when you were a child. Now, if it was a metaphor, no one got it at the wedding. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to. I'm willing to explain that to her. Well, today is not the day. All right. So why don't you get back in your car and maybe another holiday? Did you get the pies? Yes, <laughs> but I didn't tell her, and I threw them out. What? I didn't oh. want to hurt her. I sent those pies. That's her favorite pies Bill, from her favorite bakery. Bill, you've caused enough pain in this family. Now I have to go back to my family right now. Sending pies 
does not undo what you did. That's what I do for Thanksgiving. I buy the pies. We've got plenty of pies, all right? I sent you six pies. <laughs> you threw out six pies? There was a blueberry pie, a pumpkin pie. There was the mincemeat pie. <laughs> you like mincemeat, right? Did you even throw out the mincemeat pie? I threw them all out, Billy, okay? This is a very uncomfortable conversation we're having right now. Are you sober today? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. I'm a little high, but I'm oh. sober. Because <laughs> you told Phyllis that you were in rehab. For alcohol. I haven't drank in months. You don't get it, do you? Pot is a drug. Alcohol is a drug. That's why we don't have any alcohol in our house. That's fine. I don't want to drink any alcohol. I'll tell you what. <laughs> when you're sober for a year, right. maybe we'll call you and invite you. Okay. Yeah, do you have... I don't even know if you guys know I have my number. We'll find it. <laughs> how are you, you going to find you're it? You're on Facebook, right? Yeah, I don't have my phone number. Well, we'll, we'll message you. <laughs> I don't check Facebook every day. Well, maybe you should. <laughs> your mom goes on it, see what you're up to. Some of your disturbing pictures you have on there. Those are just art projects. Well, they're dark. Okay? You're a dark, angry, mean person. Let me just go in and talk. No! 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 Let me talk! Come on, let me talk! No. I think the best thing right now is for you to get back in your Honda and go back to Seattle. Pretty low on gas. I'm not giving you any more money. Just a little bit. I'm not giving you some money. I am not giving you any more money. Is that what you're here today? Is that why you're here today? No. Because you're going to work her up for money and you couldn't get into her now and work me up for money? No. How much money? How much money did you come to think you could get, Bill? I just need How much? 40 bucks $40. to fill $20 for gas and $20 for a little reefer? Is that what it's all about? I have plenty of reefer. Oh, good, Bill. Good. <laughs> now, I'm going to give you money. Okay. But I don't ever want to see you here again. Okay? Wait, you... what? <laughs> I'm going to give you $40. That's not worth never seeing my mother again? Give me a price, Bill. Give me a price. Okay. Uh, let's start the negotiation at $5 million. <laughs> For $5 million, I will not see my Bill, mother again. this is why you don't have a job, okay? Because this isn't a negotiation. This is a joke. You turn it into a negotiation. I am turning it into a negotiation, okay. Bill. Come on. Come back at me. What, are you, what would you give me? $150. <laughs> I would stay away till uh, Christmas. $150. Christmas of what? This year. <laughs> How's the dog? <laughs> You put the dog down? Uh -huh. How could you not tell me that? 
she was peeing on the carpet. So? We had a $10,000 oriental rug. So? Keep her in the garage. You know, that's a nice bed for her. No, out there you don't the keep dogs in the garage, Bill. Okay? You, you, it may be okay for you to sleep in the garage every once in a while, but we don't. I would have taken her. I would have taken her. If you would have told me she's sick and she's peeing all over the place and we can't hold pack Why? Her. So you could go get her high, blow contact reefer into her? like <laughs> <laughs> pot. Oh, what does she like, she, Bill? She likes beer. Oh, great. She Not, likes beer yeah. in the past tense well, because she's dead. <laughs> I know she's dead. What did you do with her? Did you bury her? Yes, I buried her right over there. Where? Right by that oak tree over there. Why don't you take the $150 I just offered you, pay your last respects, and never come back? I'm not, I'm not, okay. You said 150, I'll go down to 40. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, you are really an idiot. Do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> How was that? It was fun. It was good. Do we have a game going on there? I think so. It was, it was, it was, more, it was a pattern of behavior game. Okay. Uh, of, I don't know. That, uh, I mean, obviously just the, the things that you're consistently doing, which are not letting me into the house, not letting me see, see my mother, mm -hmm. and, and me continuing to try to figure out to get in there. I mean, that's, a, that's kind of a game. So were you working from a point of view of a want? I think, I, I, you know, I just listened to the Kakowski one, uh, but I agree with Craig so much. Uh, it was what did big, Craig say? Well, he, uh, he mentioned this when I interviewed him for my podcast, where, mm -hmm. you know, feeling the scene before thinking the scene, or trying to figure out how, to, how a scene feels like. So immediately when we started, I stood up, looked over at you, and I just had this feeling of... of uh, of just being kind, like being a beaten puppy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that from there, it was, you're a big guy. So that's what you said to me. Yeah. So, so it was also a status thing, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Sure. Sure. So, so, and I'm just trying to figure out like the first few lines before we found out that it was Thanksgiving, before we found out we're and this is the house I grew up in and mm -hmm. you're my stepdad. Which is all information that came which out. Which was a great gift because stepdad, you have a totally different thing of a father. Yeah, so so that came out maybe four, five, six lines in. Mm -hmm. What I like to do these days, I've been thinking a lot about this. I, li I like to start by talking about how the scene feels, not worrying about the circumstances, not worrying about what we're doing or where we're at until I just know them. I just knew you're my stepdad. I just knew we're outside the house. I just knew it was Thanksgiving. And when I know those things, I'll say them, but I'm not going to force myself to come up with circumstances until I know them. Does that make any sense? Yeah, so in that scene, can you give us an example? You, you, you knew that I was your stepfather, and when did you start Even feeling the details or the specifics in the scene? Well, I think that was maybe the first one. So more I was thinking, I was looking like, I, you know, he has a higher status than me, maybe he's a bully, maybe... Uh, you know, he's not allowing me to do something that I, I, I want to do. And just thinking about, and, and, and until I know, until the circumstances come to me, 
I'll just keep talking about the things I already know, which is how it feels. Does that make any sense? And so tell me, what were the things you were saying, how you, how were you feeling in that like, scene? Like saying things like, I belong here, or you're a bully, or I don't remember the first few things that we said, but mm -hmm. that they were all kind of based on how, this, how it feels right now without right. knowing where we're at or what's going on. Yep. There was one point, a couple points, where I was looking in your eyes, and I was lost in the scene. <laughs> and I felt like, I'm not connected, and then I reconnected with you, and then I connect. Does that ever happen to you? Sure, but it was interesting with you, because you're patient enough to, uh, to not panic in those moments. Maybe right. you're feeling panicked, but right. you're not going to show it. Um, no, I'm like judging myself. I'm like, I should be more connected. Why am I not connected? I'm looking at, you know. Right. Because um, I find what happens... It happens with new people. It happens sometimes in, sh in shows where I'm playing with people I don't know very well. Where you go out on stage and, um, you know, I like to go out on stage with, with nothing or relatively little. I also like initiating with premises, but, you know, I'm totally fine with starting with nothing. And, um, or starting with very small fragments. And sometimes in various shows, the other person panics when they realize oh you didn't come out with an idea now I got to think of something so they very quickly force themselves to get an idea out and um, and that process of like forcing an idea out doesn't feel it just doesn't always feel very good it's also that thing of one of the first things I noticed when I moved back to Chicago and I was coaching a group is there's this there's all this hemming and hawing at the beginning of scenes to kind of like put little breadcrumbs out, like um, we're uh, we're in a cafeteria, and uh, it's a college cafeteria, and you're my brother, and oh, it's a fraternity brother, and uh, we're freshmen, and it's pledge week, and it's just like, I mean, that's a process of yes handing, but it can be a little get to it, right. And I would see people do two minutes of scene work, and they're still just filling in the details of the scene. And I did, feel did, like did I feel we, like go on. And I feel like people should just don't worry about the circumstances until they occur to you, and they just tell the other person what, what's going on. There's no reason to be coy. There's no reason to be to to do these little hints at each other. You know, just say what's going. What, say what you know. Did we get to it? I think so, yeah. I mean, we got to it pretty fast, I thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, we started from a place of feeling, and then those things started coming out, the stepdad, and this is Thanksgiving, and this is the house I grew up in. And, mm -hmm. and uh, the thing I also liked about the scene was in those moments when you were feeling lost, uh, I, I see people, what they'll do is they, they have one thing that they talk about, right? The, the, you know, the beginning of the scene we're talking about, I want to go in and have Thanksgiving with you. Uh, and you're not going to let me in. If you let me in, the scene is over. If I walk away, the scene is over. So we don't want either of those things to happen. So we just stand there and argue about the same point for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and what I liked about that scene was that there were moments when we, could, when we stopped that argument. We just looked at each other. Maybe we tried to talk about something else. And then other things came up. The, the wedding, the song I sang at your wedding. Right. Uh, the dog, uh, the pies, uh, the alcohol abuse. These are all things that feed into the, what was already happening between us, but they're new things. And that's what, you, that's what a scene needs. Well, I always like that kind of improv because you for an improviser doing it, you're excited because you're discovering the, like, 
we discovered your character and we discovered my character together, mm -hmm. you know? There's also a moment that I probably would have never done three years ago. Which is? Which was the moment when I screamed and tried to get past you. Yeah. Right? Um, I don't know if that was a very good moment or not, but, but I would have never tried it. Because, and uh, I went through these classes with uh, Paola Coletta. A clown. clown. She does clown, uh, Red Nose Clown, she does uh, physical theater, mm -hmm. um, mask work, uh, all kinds of stuff that I just would never have done when I was 20. I just would have been like, ah, I don't want to try this right. stuff. I'm an improviser, it was, not a clown. It was so powerful, so interesting, so uh, good. Um, and part of it was, one of the things was, was trusting your impulse to just to surprise yourself in terms of your energy, your emotions, your your delivery to not get into a not get into a, a a rhythm a rut of a rhythm and then stay there it's, it was like you want characters that change and pop and surprise you well I thought it was a great choice because it changed the it it changed something in the energy you know all right we're gonna take some questions really quickly okay okay great uh, John can you turn the house lights on great uh, right here Tom? Yeah. Hey, Kevin. Hi. Uh, quick question. Going back to when you said you were retake plastic denoids and so forth after layoff, after having success early on and retaking classes, how did you find improv itself had changed and how did you reassemble to uh, doing it again? Well, hmm. Well, I mean, annoyance is their own thing and has been for a very long time. So, um, I think I just never had that, I'd never gone through the class, just like I hadn't gone through the classes at Second City, I also never went through the classes at The Annoyance, and it was just, now is a point in my life where I could do it, and why not, you know? I think for, there were many years when I would, my ego would have gotten in the way of taking more classes. It's like, I'm a teacher, why do I take classes? And now I realize I should never stop taking classes. I should always be, I should always take a few classes every year. Um, even if they're not directly related to improv, because they'll help a lot. Now that didn't answer your question at all, did it? Um, I feel Chicago improv has changed a lot in my in my absence. Um, it has nothing to do with me. Uh, but we struggled the, along for a couple of yeah. years until you came I mean, back. When I was, yeah, I know. But I'm getting things. I'm shipping things back up into shape. Uh, no, but when I, uh, you know, when I was here in like mid, the mid '90s. Uh, all we talked about, it seemed like, was game. I feel like we were talking about the idea of game. It was, the, it was kind of the central core of what we were, when we were getting notes about our Herald, when I was giving other people notes about their Herald, uh, maybe not so much in class. I mean, Dell's class was very experimental and not really Did Del, who was who, who brought the whole, because when I started at the Improv Olympic, which was good three or four years before you, maybe even longer, five, the game was not something. Game was more your generation. Who Maybe. was who? Who? I think it's I, well. This is a total guess, but I think it probably started with. Uh, were, were, were you on the the larger version of Blue Velveeta? The, I, I the was. Team? You were around at that time, but you weren't on Blue Velveeta, right? No. And then we did Comedy Underground. They, you remember they broke off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a big coup with the, yeah, yeah. the I.O. And then they. Went. You weren't part. You weren't part of the team when they were at I.O. No. Okay. So Blue Velveeta was like the big team before. Big house team, like Jay Leggett, Kevin yeah. Dorff, Brian McCann, yeah, really uh, great Tom team. Booker, Susan Messing. Yeah. So uh, I think it kind of started around the time that they were, because I studied for a year with Jay Leggett before I started at mm -hmm. I.O. And Jay 
taught me game. He taught it with a little bit, you know, different kind of language than than how we later taught it at UCB. But uh, in any case, so we we talked about it. it was very much this this thing. We go to New York. It continues to be this thing I explore for another seven years teaching. Uh, and I come back, and it doesn't feel. And I may be totally wrong about this because I'm not in every. I don't know what everybody's teaching these days, but it doesn't feel like people are teaching it uh, very much at all. Or you'll get some some game like things. You know, I think people teach it, but they don't. Um, maybe not as aggressively or as single mindedly as as they do at UCB. But so. the UCB has almost made it their own. You know, like sure, it's changed. You know. And and the thing that I realize is like the the way that they lay it out in the book. Uh, it's I gotta very, get. I gotta get. A it's copy. a very nice. It's a very good way to think about it. You start with. What's the situation? What's the base reality of the scene, right? Then you discover what is un what hap what is the thing in it that happens that's unusual, mm -hmm. uh, and then you have to turn that unusual thing through justifying it into kind of a a, a rule that you can play from there for there, that point forward. Like you're always gonna you're always gonna make choices that are in line with this this decision you make early on in the scene. Um, and the thing that I realized is, you know, reading the book, it's like it doesn't quite matter how you get there. A lot of people kind of talk about what's that one thing that you're doing in the scene. I mean, um, Mick of the Annoyance does. They, they talk about what's your thing, what's your deal, right? And it's similar. Um, so it's not completely out of the picture here. But, uh, yeah, they have a very particular way of, of talking about it. But it's almost like they have ownership of it. Do you feel sometimes? Well, nobody else took ownership of it. I mean, right. I mean if anything... I hear people talk more, more against the game, the idea of it. I'm not sure what their their and problem I, is with it, but and I, I think too. Like I mean, I suspect I know, but what do you think it is? Jealousy? No, 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 no. No, it comes off as uh, some people misinterpret it as like trying to be funny or uh, being jokey or something like that. And I, uh, I mean, I've had students who've taken my class and uh, at the end of it, just like you know, this isn't for me. I, I don't want to try and be funny, and it's sort of like. Okay, that's not really w what I'm t trying to teach here, but I can see how you would misinterpret that. Mm -hmm. Because it, when something funny happens in the class, we talk about it, and then we try to figure out how to make that happen again. Um, and some people don't like that. Some people want it to be this sort of art that has nothing to do with comedy, I guess. I don't know. Uh, let's take another question. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there is an idea, a belief system that maybe if we you're constantly taking classes that you're not you're not balancing that with actually working and performing, that you'll become one of those perpetual students that people that only take classes don't really perform. And I think is that a legitimate concern for people to have? I don't know. Uh, when my my sort of most productive year as an improviser was probably my first year at I/O. And during that period, I was taking classes there. I was probably still at classes at Center Theater. But I was also performing. I had three different groups I was performing with, and I was getting coached in a couple. I mean, I was doing improv six, six seven nights a week. Um, would I have gotten there without classes? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, if you can't, obviously, getting, being on a team with people that you enjoy and getting coached by the same person over a long period of time you're going to learn more than being in a class. But it's hard to get to that place without being in a class, too, you know? Uh, uh, another question? Right over here. Uh, yeah. Other than uh, taking, or going to shows or doing improv-related things, uh, what, what has helped you uh, as, as an improv improviser outside of that? 
being a part of the theater in general has helped me so much. Um, a lot of the ideas that I use as an improviser or as a teacher are, are from other uh, part. I mean, the thing when we did Naked. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was like the producer of the show that Jimmy did with uh, Stephanie Weir. Um, and we did uh, uh, a lot of repetition. But we also, I think that my ideas about what we later called monocene in New York were forming during that, which was these, which came from doing a Chekhov play, which was wanting to do these very long scenes where people made entrances and exits and uh, so... So just so people know, we, it was Stephanie and I and we did one long, it was like an hour scene. Yeah, two, two people, two characters, one scene. And no one was, had done that really before, would no, you say? No, and no. And, 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 and the, the whole two-person thing was no, something... No, people, yeah. I mean, it sounded extremely hard at the time. I don't uh, think it would sound, like I think there would be a lot more people who would say, well, I could do that now. Mm -hmm. It's still very hard, but to do that well, but it seemed, I think that was the whole point of it, right? It was that we, we sounded, we wanted to do something that sounded really hard. Right. Um, and, and I... Uh, but uh, that, although a lot of the ideas came from, from, from right. theater. Doing theater, taking theater classes. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I feel like, I feel like I owe you an amends back then because I feel like I was very controlling and very uptight and not <laughs> trusting, and I don't think I gave you enough respect. Did you... Uh, I didn't. I don't. I don't. Okay. Think. So I, I just. I. I, I, I didn't take it personally. Okay, but I always felt did. bad. I always felt bad. You know, no. like because my whole thing was I had done. I'm 27. I still live at home and sell office supplies, and it was this big hit. And I wanted this thing to be a huge hit. Right. And I also, and I admitted it in this podcast, I was so jealous of Stephanie Weir and her talent. It was getting in the way of my work, and I was mm -hmm. always making angry choices, and it was it, and it was just. I just, I feel, I, I just I want to make an amends. For whatever it is, I, I just didn't feel like I treated you right or... Oh, I didn't, I didn't feel that way. I mean, I knew, I knew at the time that you, uh, well, I knew at the time both those things that like, you know, you were, you were the guy with the, the reputation in the right, show. Right, right. And Stephanie was the best improviser in Chicago. Amazing. So, uh, you know, she was just, I, I was such a huge fan of her as a, as a performer. So I, you know, you, it was an exciting combination, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, and we, and we, you know, Rob and I, Rob Mello, who directed yeah, it, yeah, we, I think we both expected it to be a huge hit too, um, and it was, it, you know, I think people really dug it, and we, we did right. get good audiences, but it, what, yeah, it didn't turn into this huge thing, um, and you know, that's an interesting thing about you, and then we have to, we got to start wrapping this up, but you've always been comfortable being the number two guy. The guy in the background, be it the UCB, be it the IO, be it when we did Naked. Now you come to Chicago and you're like, you know what, I've done that. I've helped other people, now I wanna build something myself. Right. How did that shift? Well, I felt that in New York for years. I mean, I, I was working for the UCB and, and, and I, they treated me very well there and mm -hmm. I was, you know, it was a great series of jobs and I love teaching for them. But at the end of the day, you know, you want your you want your own thing. I mean, that's why the pit happened. That's why the magnet happened, because uh, there are people who uh, were associated with the UCB who wanted Ali their Faranakian own. Ali yeah. and Armando Diaz. They wanted to start their own thing, um, because no matter how hard you work, I mean, I could work for twenty years for the UCB, and it's still going to be their show, right? Their thing, and that's 
great. Uh, it's great if you want to go on to something else. I mean, there's so many people who've gone through UCB and are now writers for television or performers and actors. Uh, so they don't care that that they don't have any ownership in the in the theater that they perform in because they have this other career. But my sort of end goal was to run a theater. So if that's my if that's if that's really the dream I've always had is to have a theater that I would run, um, I should run my own, you know. Not and that's under the gun. That's yeah. That's what I'm trying to build with with Angie McMahon. Um, we've got to wrap this up. But one piece of advice you would give to an improviser starting out today. Hmm. Boy, that's that's. If I could only give them one. Well, I mean, if you've got many, I mean, if you can do it quickly. Well, you know, here's one thing I would say to somebody. You know, I, I had a conversation with, uh, there was somebody who uh, was thinking about taking one of my classes, and um, she had been, you know, she'd been in Chicago for a few years, three or four years, uh, gone through most of the programs, and she was trying to make that decision, should I, should I stay here, or should I move to New York, or move to L.A.? And I asked her, like, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? And she said, I want to, I want to work in television. I probably want to be a comedy writer or performer, you know, in comedy on television, uh, maybe movies. And I said, well, leave. You got to go. Get out of Chicago. Um, Chicago is wonderful, and it's a not, it's not a bad place to start um, uh, right out of college. Um, I, but it just was such a different experience in terms of like getting like moving through the system and getting to a point where you actually have a chance to get a job uh, it's possible to get a job out of Chicago it certainly happens um, but there are just the number of people I know who are working in New York and LA these days it, it's a hundredfold the number of people I know who are working in Chicago that's an exaggeration but it's 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 very different experience so at the point when you know I really, really want to do this for a living, and you know it's very specifically that you're interested in comedy writing, especially. I think you you, you do yourself a service to get to get to New York or get to LA. Kevin Mullaney, thank you so much. There we have it. It's the Kevin Mullaney episode, and I want to thank our guest, Kevin Mullaney. And uh, check out his new theater here in Chicago, Under the Gun. It's, he started it with Angela McMahon, who's another wonderful person. And I know Kevin does classes over there, and he specializes in the game. So check out Under the Gun Theater. Also want to thank our home base, the people that uh, treat us like such rock stars. And if you're ever in Chicago, check out Stage 773. Uh, I can't thank them enough for hosting Improv Nerd. Also, my producer, Ben Caprero, he's the one who makes it sound so slick and so professional. You wouldn't be hearing my voice right now if it wasn't for Ben. You figured this out. I'm going to give it a plug anyways. We're on feralaudio.com. That's a podcast collective. We're not alone there. I'm going to just name drop. What the hell? Todd Berry? Chelsea Peretti, Dan Harmon, they all have podcasts on Feral Audio. So check out feralaudio.com. Also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and uh, my award-winning classes, The Artist Low Comedy, and my Artist Low Comedy Intensives, which are coming in July, and our Improv Nerd blog, which will make you a better improviser, just read it and sign up on our newsletter. Go to jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com. 
Also, go to Improv Nerd. We've got uh, Improv Nerd is on Twitter. Improv Nerd has a fan Facebook page. Did I say that right? I always, I always jumble that one. But go to Improv Nerd and like us on our fan page. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Hotel Lincoln. And more importantly, I'd like to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't lie. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich- I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my- <laughs> <laughs>